the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. My presentation uh, will consist primarily of information that you don't see in the mainline press or here on radio or TV. Although many of you may have um, become uh, familiar with it from other sources. I plan to talk about the three most important subjects facing mankind, or humankind, excuse me, um, at this time. They are uh, changing the banking system, the financial system, global warming, and the extraterrestrial presence and relationship with the U.S. Armed Forces, all set in the wider context of what is going on in the U.S. and in the world. As early as October 1940, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is centered in Washington, D.C., decided that they should plan for a post-war empire. They assumed, I guess, that Hitler was going to lose the war and that they should start making uh, plans for the next empire, which would be centered in the United States. And it would be much grander than the one that Hitler had uh, been planning for. It would be more extensive. It would include all of the land that Hitler was coveting, but also uh, all of North America and uh, much of uh, Southeast Asia. And so they put this plan into operation and it's been going ever since. When the war ended uh, in 1945, there was an operation called Operation Paperclip. The United States um, uh, forces recruited many scientists from, from Germany who had been working on all sorts of things from missiles to atomic energy to uh, medical uh, innovations and so on. And they asked the president if that was okay, President Truman, and he said, yes, it's okay, but don't recruit anyone who was involved in the Nazi party, you know, in a major way. Well, then the armed forces in what I would call, uh, may, if I may, without uh, uh, too much reflection, typical uh, way, ignored the president's orders and brought in a lot, many scientists who had been very, very active in the Nazi party. and. Uh, they were, um, they were given new identities and put in important jobs by the CIA. And it was an irony that in the CIA there were two different factions, one of them trying to find Nazis that got into the estates illegally and prosecute them and or deport them, and another branch of the CIA bringing them in and giving them new names, new dossiers, and new jobs, and poor. 
So this was all going on at the same time, a real dichotomy if there ever was one. Well, the rationale for that, of course, was to uh, <clears throat> help fight the, uh, the communists. And uh, one thing that was interesting about the, um, some of the German scientists was that it was inevitable that some of them were familiar with the greys one of the species of uh, aliens uh, who had been working in Germany, developing many of the things that uh, we know about today. The, uh, they were working on saucers and, uh, and all sorts of things, and we were working on uh, medical uh, situations, uh, high, producing hybrids and uh, doing all kinds of things, many of which were illegal and uh, many of which are of questionable morality. Um, I have numb thumbs, I'm sorry to say, so if I sometimes get a page out of whack here, you'll have to forgive me. When it comes to the question of, uh, of extraterrestrials, um, there was very little interest in the United States until the two crashes near Roswell, New Mexico, on July the 4th, 1947. And there's some difference of opinion as to why the crashes occurred, but I think the one that's most commonly held is that the US had put up a new and very powerful uh, uh, radar installation and that this had been uh, in some way interfered with their um, electromagnetic uh, uh, control system and the two of them crashed. They were of, of different species but, um, and the crashes were some distance apart but they were both eventually recovered. On Tuesday, July the 8th, 1947, Mountain Time, Army Airfield Commander Colonel William Blanchard announced recovery of a flying disc. His public relations officer put out a press release to that effect. It was reported in the local press. That was the truth. Remember that word, it's the last time you'll hear it for a long while. Later that same day, Major General Roger Ramey, commander of the 8th Air Force, who was Blanchard's boss, put out a different version. He said it was not a flying disc. It was a Rawin, R-A-W-I-N, target suspended by neoprene rubber balloons. That was a lie. Not only was it a lie, it was the cornerstone lie for every lie that's been told in the last 68 years. And you've been told some of them. Secretary of the Air Force, blatant lie. President's office, saying they don't know. There's nothing to suggest that these things are real. And this lie that occurred that day on the 5th of July, 
1947, has become the public policy, the official policy of the United States and the American Armed Forces. So although the U.S. government uh, feigned disinterest uh, for a long, long time, for decades, uh, they were really very interested uh, from the first. And according to an early Canadian enthusiast, Wilbert uh, Smith, who was a senior employee in the uh, Department of Transport in Ottawa, of which I later became minister, uh, in 19... In uh, November 21st, 1950, that's a long time ago, he wrote a memo to his boss, a top secret memo, which was uh, subsequently uh, declassified, probably in error, but uh, it was. And he said about the memo, which was information he had gleaned in Washington from our embassy and from American officials when he was down there, that the matter, the matter of UFOs, was the most highly classified in the United States, even higher than the H-bomb. The matter was considered of tremendous significance, and that a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush, were trying to determine how the craft worked. The matter must have been taken very seriously by the U.S. government because President Harry Truman established the MJ-12, which you have heard or will hear about from other speakers. This is a very small elite group that was set up by President Truman to manage and control the ET file and to determine a course of action. Well, you can understand the concern in the United States. World War II was just over, and uh, they had become top dog and uh, had played a very significant part uh, uh, in winning the war. Didn't do it alone, as some people seem to suggest, but in concert with uh, the Allies and with uh, Russia at the time, we won the war. The U.S. Uh, had developed technology which was as good as any at the time, and all of a sudden, they're faced with the fact that there is technology light years ahead of theirs. So that would be enough to shake them up pretty well. Well, the operation got going, the, under Dr. Bush, moved to Nevada and Arizona, went underground, and according to Dr. Michael Salas, who is pretty well known, who has just written a new book, President Eisenhower gave Nelson Rockefeller the job of how best to control the back engineering. And it became a strange mixture of government and private industry, and this was deniability, so that if someone asked under the Information Freedom of Information Act for certain uh, documents, the government would say, oh, we don't have those, because they were probably in a locked cabinet 
in one of the companies who was working on that particular special uh, interest uh, project. President Eisenhower became concerned as to what was going on, and he kept asking his military to tell him what it was, and they refused. He finally threatened to send in the First Army. And with that threat, they allowed him to send <clears throat> three, or it may have been four of his buddies to areas 51 and uh, S4, and to report back to him uh, as to what was going on, which in fact was the back engineering of the uh, crashed vehicle, the one that was in best shape, from Roswell. Uh, no president since then, in my opinion, has been cleared to know the total nature and extent of the black operations. Of course, they've been briefed, they've been told some of the things that are going on in general, but uh, a lot of things, I am sure, have been going on that they did not know about and still do not know about. This is despite every president but one being a member of the Council on Foreign Relations uh, because they felt they had to, to have the sponsorship of the elite group, which was in fact uh, becoming uh, very, very powerful, and which became a, a part of a larger group, of a much larger group. The Council on Foreign Relations uh, joined with a newer, more secretive group called the Bilderbergers. And then later, the new, more transparent uh, Trilateral Commission. In my book, both of my books, incidentally, uh, I just might correct that uh, Light at the End of the Tunnel is not my latest book, it's the second latest, and uh, The Money Mafia, World in Crisis is the latest one, and it's a little more up-to-date, as I will mention, uh, mention later. But in both of them, I call these three organizations, the Council on Foreign Relations, which was the oldest, and was very secretive, uh, well, not, not so secretive, because what I was telling you about planning for the empire, they wrote, and it's in one of my books, a, a quote from one of their, from one of their documents. Um, but then the Bilderbergers, Tremendous effort to be very, very secret, and uh, with a lot of success, and uh, involving a lot of the major news outlets in the world, which their members have managed to uh, buy or control by one means or another. And um, so, uh, this organization became the three, but then it expanded further. It took in the entire banking cartel worldwide, the international banking cartel and financial system. And that became the apex of what I call the cabal in my book. And then below the uh, banking cartel, the oil cartel, 
and they have tremendous power. And one of the problems we have today on global warming is that they spend millions of dollars trying to fuzz the science in order to persuade a lot of people that this isn't really a problem at all and that we shouldn't worry about it. It's just something that happens every few uh, hundred years and it'll uh, write itself, itself in due course. Well then, the, uh, in addition to the financial cartel and the oil cartel, next line is the CEOs and top officers of the transnational corporations. And some of them have become almost as powerful as kings. Then the intelligence agencies, a whole bunch of them, primarily American, but not exclusively. And they uh, include, of course, the, F the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA, the all-seeing eye. And this group, in total, has taken over the governance of the United States and much of the world. They call the shots in the USA and beyond. It is sometimes referred to as the shadow government or the alternate government. Its power is almost beyond words. And uh, as Grant said last night, uh, when senior White House correspondent Sarah McClendon uh, asked Bill Clinton why he didn't come clean with some of the information about uh, the UFO file, he said, Sarah, there is a government within the government, and I don't control it. Imagine the Commander-in-Chief of the United States and the man with his finger on the uh, atomic button doesn't control a large part of that force. It is doing things and making plans that I am positive he is not aware of. Well, the cabal also controls the uh, international monetary system, as I said the cartel. Their apex of the power is the money mafia, which has been robbing ordinary folks for, for centuries. And one of the reasons is most people don't know what money is to start with. And uh, you can hear some uh, conversations going on ab about money and so on, and uh, usually they're, uh, they're quite lacking in uh, how comprehensive they are. Uh, the brief lesson, uh, here's a $10 bill, that is fiat money. It is printed um, in Canada by the Bank of Canada. Here's a loonie minted by the Royal Canadian Mint. They are both legal money, but they are the only legal money as far as being what we call real money. 97% of all money is nothing but a bank entry, nothing but a bank deposit created by the private banks. 
And the way the system works is this. If you go in and want to borrow 35000 for a new car, uh, your friendly banker will ask you for collateral. And uh, if you have some stocks or bonds, that's fine. If not, a mortgage, second mortgage on your house or your cottage. Failing that, the co-signature of a rich relative of some kind. And uh, then finally, when that uh, is satisfied, the collateral, <clears throat> you're asked to sign a note for 35000 a repayable on-demand principal and interest at prime plus some amount. And I usually say, depending on the color of your eyes, uh, what the, uh, the ultimate figure is. Uh, then they tap a computer, and 35000 appears instantly in your account that you can go out and buy the car with. Seconds earlier, that money did not exist. It is not money. They're not lending you money because they don't have it. What they're lending you is their credit. And uh, it is a one great, huge Ponzi scheme. If we all went in and asked for our money, cash, from the banks, they would fold immediately unless the Bank of Canada had enough time to print money to buy their assets and try and keep us from being so, uh, so destructive or whatever. And that's all that props it up, is faith in the system rolling along and creating new credit money fast enough to keep the system from collapsing. It is a very, very bad system. Because the essence of it, well, I should say, go back to a second or two, the way the, the uh, banking system works is after they create the $35,000 that they lend to you with a credit, that is, becomes a liability. And then your note is an asset. And the way they make their money is by what they call the spread. So if you decided not to buy a new car right away and uh, because you read in the papers that they were going to have new hybrids next year that you'd like to take a look at or something or other, they would pay you either zero interest or maybe one-eighth of one percent or one-quarter of one percent interest and you would probably be paying them four or five percent on your note. And it's the difference between these two. That's where they make their money. So the more money they create, and they use that word money loosely, the more loans they create, the more debt they create, because it's all debt that has to be repaid with interest, the more money they make. So they're very pleased to give you a mortgage uh, for your house or whatever, because they can uh, charge you interest on that, on money that they create out of thin air. And the system is so rotten when you look at it, they have to have 5% capital in order to create a dollar. So in effect, they can have, say, a million dollars capital, and they can create $20 million in loans. And they can create $50,000 for a student, 
with having what I call blood and sweat and tears money of $1,250. They lend the student 50000 and the student has to pay back 50000 blood, sweat, and tears money, plus interest. The bottom line is that they are able to accumulate assets worldwide for five cents on the dollar so that they can buy buildings or ports or ships or planes or ports or whatever they want for five cents on the dollar. So that is how basically 80 families in the world have accumulated 50% of the world's wealth. A year ago it was 88 families, now it's 80. It's getting worse all the time as a result of globalization. So this is the most urgent problem that we have to face. And we had in Canada uh, a system that worked from 1930, well, it worked from 39 to 74. I'm old enough to remember that in 1938 there were no jobs in Canada, none. The war came along, pretty soon everyone's working. They're either in the armed forces, or they're building factories, or making munitions. Unemployment, down to 1%, historic low. You say, well, where did the money that the government spend come from? They had no money. The answer is the Bank of Canada printed it, P-R-I-N-T-E-D. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on the actual mechanism, but basically the government gave the bank a bond, the bank printed the money and gave it to the government to spend into circulation to pay the troops and so on and to build the factories. And then uh, it wound up in the private banks where it became what the economists called high-powered money. In other words, the money that they could leverage into more. <clears throat> this system worked. It got us out of the Depression. It helped us finance World War II. It helped us finance the post-war development, the St. Lawrence Seaway, Trans-Canada Highway, and the beautiful new airport terminals that uh, were built right after the war. And help laid the foundation for our social security system, which was considered one of the best. In 1974, the Bank of Canada unilaterally, without either the advice or consent of the government of Canada, changed the system. And they stopped creating low-cost money for the government of Canada. Because didn't explain that although the government paid the interest to the bank on the bonds, the Bank of Canada, because we own it, gave it back to the government as dividends. Only the cost of administration deducted. So in effect, it was near zero cost money. In Zimbabwe, they stopped doing that, and they started taking their orders from the Bank on International Settlements in Zurich, Switzerland. and. Uh, one of the conditions was that they stopped providing low-cost money, zero-cost money for governments. That meant that when we had two recessions later, we had to borrow the money in the market 
and in 1981-82 for as high as 22%. Created huge debts, which are still with us. And we have paid on that debt between 1974-75 and 2010-11, one trillion, one hundred billion dollars. None of which was necessary. And can you just think what we could do if we had a trillion dollars to start spending, building new transportation systems and, and speeding up the health system and doing a thousand other things? So, to get off this subject, there is no solution to the present situation worldwide, including what's going on in Europe, except the, insert, the insertion of a significant amount of government-created money. You can't have a system where it's all created as debt, because there's no way to pay it off. Not even the principal, let alone the interest. So you have to have some, an infusion of government-created money, and in my books I'm recommending 34%, uh, in order to dilute the sea of debt in which we are drowning and the reason for austerity and prosperity, both in Canada, the United States, and Europe and other places. So, uh, this is the ur most urgent problem. The most important problem is global warming. As of now, though, we don't have the financial flexibility to do what we should be doing. So, uh, the cabal controls the pace of global warming. When I talk about these three problems on radio and TV sometimes, I often get uh, replies from people, particularly in the United States, where the propaganda is greater than it is here, saying, uh, Paul or Hellier or whatever, uh, I agree with every word you've said, but, and the but is, I don't agree on global warming. And uh, that is sad because you have the most powerful country in the world not willing to address the, uh, the problem head on because we are being brainwashed just like we were by tobacco companies. They knew darn well their cigarettes were carcinogenic. They knew it for years. They had it in their, in their filing cabinets. But they deliberately fuzzed the questions so that people would keep on smoking and the, well, because we're not sure whether it's unsafe or whether it isn't. Uh, and that's what they're doing on global warming. Science has proven unequivocally that we have a problem. And it was mentioned that I said with 10 years we had to do something about it. That was in Light at the End of the Tunnel. In my present book, which was written four years later, I say we have seven years in which to do something. And, uh, you know, it was good that Pope 
Francis told us the other day what we had to do. We have to stop fracking. We have to stop drilling the North Sea and the Gulf of Mexico and off the Atlantic coast and elsewhere in the world. And we have to mobilize an all-out war to save the planet. In my book, I list, the latest book, I list a lot of headlines about new projects for oil, which would take us out 30 or 40 or 50 years. Hey, our house is on fire. And if, if your house is on fire, you don't sit out in the backyard and have a mint julep or something or other, you do something about it. And you don't just say, you know, maybe somebody was cooking on the stove and they overheated and it's sinking up the place. It's ridiculous. So we need the money, which we can do if we change the banking system. We need the technology, which already exists and which is being hidden by the cabal because the oil industry wants to cash in its chips, trillions of dollars worth of assets, while the planet goes up in flames. And that isn't good enough. Something has to be done. And I was, in my present book suggesting seven years, <clears throat> based it on the, the uh, experience of World War II, when I well remember all of the automobile plants, all of the refrigerator plants, all of the washing machine plants were converted into the production of armaments so we could win the war. And we did. We have to do exactly the opposite now. Spending a trillion dollars on armaments is insane. Absolutely insane. And it's only being done because the cabal has a policy of perpetual war. As soon as they run out of one enemy, they create another one. I have a friend, uh, Dr. Carol Rosen, who worked with Dr. Werner von Braun, one of the people who came over in uh, Operation Paperclip, but who mellowed as he got older. He was a rocket scientist. And he said, they have to have an enemy. And so he said, first it will be the communists. And then it will be the terrorists. And finally, it will be the ETs. And that's the path we're moving along. So, when we didn't have enough terrorists, what did they do? They allowed 9-11. George W. Bush government knew weeks in advance that that was going to happen. How far back, I don't know, but at least to August the 6th, which just happens to be my birthday, so I can remember it very well, when he was British as French. They let it happen, but not only that, there must have been collaboration. Because if you look at my book and then check with the one that I referenced there, with a lot of 500 pages of evidence, you'll see that there was controlled demolition in addition to probably the use of a new weapon, a Tesla-type weapon that we call it dustifying. Are any of you old enough to remember Buck Rogers in the 25th century? Oh, there are a few people here that do. And they were talking about a disintegrator. 
Well, that's what we're talking about. This weapon disintegrated the steel and concrete in those buildings before they hit the ground. So that what got down to the ground was dust instead of concrete and steel. And incidentally, as you'll find out, there weren't two buildings that went down, there weren't three buildings that went down, there were not four buildings that went down, there were not five, there were not six, there were seven buildings that went down, and you never hear about that in the press. So you have to do your own homework. So, global warming, can it be done? Yes. The energy source exists, and uh, Les Caston, who was, uh, Len Caston, who was speaking in the morning, has a book on the uh, Serpo expedition. I'm sure that it will contain this information, that one of the things that the U.S. astronauts found when they reached Serpo was that they had a box about so big, and that's, they just plugged in their energy requirements there. And it provided the energy for the whole building. So what we need to do in seven years is install something like that in every car, truck, tractor, boat, airplane, and home in the world. And if I just say in one sentence, it is not going to disrupt, well, that, it, it's going to disrupt the way we're doing things, that's for sure. <clears throat> it's not going to mean mass unemployment. On the contrary, if you get people all over the world installing, the, making and then installing these boxes, it's going to create billions of jobs. And not just rich countries, but poor countries as, as well, assuming that the technology is made available at, uh, at a reasonable cost. Well, the cabal controls the ET file. And uh, although it is now clear that UFOs of at least four different species have been visiting Earth for thousands of years. And there's a Sacker study, I don't, it's uh, in one of uh, Lynn Caston's books and uh, maybe in others. In the 1960s, there was an armada of 50 UFOs came south across the, uh, Europe. And the Sacker, which is the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, was uh, apoplectic, just about ready to press the panic button. And what happened? The 50 turned around and went back over the North Pole. They were not Russian, they were extraterrestrial. This resulted in a three-year study that he ordered, and the three-year study said it proved conclusively that at least four species had been visiting Earth for centuries, thousands of years. So, uh, there didn't seem to be a lot of traffic until the uh, U.S. started developing and using uh, atomic weapons. And after the uh, first uh, atomic bomb was det detonated in uh, New Mexico at White Sands, um, they started appearing in numbers. 
And since then, the traffic has increased dramatically. Thousands of sightings. Many different species. I remember uh, Dr. Ed Mitchell, Apollo astronaut, uh, when he was in Toronto soon after I went public and wanted to uh, meet me and say hello, we invited him for dinner. And he lives in, New, in uh, Roswell. And uh, at dinner, uh, he said something about the alleged uh, crash in Roswell. And I said, well, come on, Ed, you know. You know that it was real. And his face turned all red. Of course he knew it was real. Within seconds, he said, well, how many species do you think there are? <laughs> and I said, somewhere between 2 and 12. And he said, yes, that's what I think, too. Well, we were both, dare I use that word, very conservative. And uh, there are far more than that, and more, dis more appearing all the time. And uh, most of them are, uh, are wonderful, and, and maybe one or two are not, and that's one of the $64 trillion questions. But uh, it is my belief that the extraterrestrials, and here primarily what I would call the benign, the good ones, our friends, have taken an inventory of every atomic installation in the whole world. U.S., Canadian, uh, Russian, Chinese, everybody. And that they have a list of all the places where those things are stored and all the atomic uh, generating plants. And whether they have some kind of plan that they would uh, come and rescue us if somebody was stupid enough to start an atomic war or not, I don't know. That is one of my prayers and hopes that maybe they would. Uh, they have also interfered from time to time with U.S. missile installations and affected their control systems. My first experience with that uh, was uh, when I delivered the keynote address at the Extraterrestrial Civilizations and World Peace Conference at Kona, Hawaii. Uh, Mike Bird, who was one of the people who uh, got me involved in this business uh, just about uh, 10 years ago, was there and uh, we asked him where there was a decent place to eat. He said, down at the end of the block. And I said, come along. And we went down and a couple were coming up and he says, there's one of the presenters coming. And I said, well, let's in invite them to join us. And it was uh, Captain retired Robert Salas and his wife. And he was telling about uh, his story of a UFO shutting down one by one seven of the uh, Minutemen 1 missiles. And uh, this, of course, upset everyone terribly. And uh, it was studied to death. What caused it? What happened? They spent a fortune trying to figure out exactly what had happened. I don't think they ever determined 100% what it was. And uh, it is possible that it was just the electromagnetic effects from the 
vehicles because the saucers have electromagnetic uh, fields around them. And uh, if you saw one parked up in front of you and you were driving along, if you went too close, your car would just quit. And uh, then if it took off and flew away, you start your car and away you go. And it may have been just that kind of, of thing, of phenomenon. I don't think anybody ever came to a real conclusion what it was. But I do know, and it's funny, and I won't uh, go read these other uh, four or five examples that I was uh, encouraged to use in another lecture. But there have been other examples since. And one of the interesting things that's, is that whereas the United States Air Force won't tell you the truth about just about anything, they made sure that they leaked all of these examples to the press. And their motive must have been, we need more money because this is a threat to our national security. Therefore, we need more money to meet this uh, supposed threat. I uh, personally am not convinced. I think that uh, we have more to fear from the cabal and the, uh, and the people who are running the US military than we have uh, from our visitors from afar. So we'll skip over those other examples um, and carry on because time is running out. I'm going to skip down to what the cabal has in in mind for us. What's the end game? Well, the end game is a new world order. George Bush Sr. Uh, launched it in one of his uh, addresses when he was president, and it sounded absolutely great. You know, like the world that we all dream of, peace, harmony, love, everybody with enough to eat, a little water to drink, and a little education, and uh, shirt on his or her head and so on. But that isn't what the US military had in mind. They had in mind empire. And it was all set out in a document called Plan for a New American Century. At least that's what it was given. And most Americans I know had never heard of it. Most people have never heard of it. It told about all the wars that they planned to do in the Middle East. It told what they were really up to. But it's just like Mein Kampf. Nobody took it seriously. Nobody bothered reading it, even though it was a blueprint for what was going to happen. And uh, so uh, the major question mark, I guess, is whether or not this is being done in conjunction with extraterrestrials. And if so, who is calling the shots? I heard an address by Phil Schneider, an engineer who had worked underground, uh, underground bases in the United States for a number of years. And he had a third level security clearance, which means that the Dulce base, the Dulce base is seven floors underground. And you need a higher security clearance for each level down you go. 
You get down to the bottom one seventh, that is the ultimate. And uh, they were doing some strange things down there. And a lot of the same experiments that were being done by the Third Reich in the 1930s. And as a matter of fact, there were some things that happened down there that led to an, a war, an attack, uh, some years ago. And uh, I was asking Len Caston last night at dinner if, in his opinion, the base was re, uh, refurbished, rebuilt after the attack, and is now still a joint U.S. Uh, gray base. And he said yes, which raises some uh, interesting questions in my mind. But anyway, getting back to uh, Phil Schneider, he said a black budget uh, well, I'm going to skip that, too. It was, it was so much money, it just boggles the mind. And then he went on to say uh, that they were making 10,000 railway cars with 143 pairs of shackles in each. This was being done by somebody he knew very well. And say, what do they want railway cars with shackles for? And uh, then he said 64,000 black helicopters, more every hour with LIDAR and computer-enhanced imaging radar. They can see you walking from room to room when they fly over your house, end of quote. Very comforting, isn't it? So one of Schneider's revelations is literally earth-shaking. Thank you. It's going to be difficult, but if you say I have to do it, I'll do it. He said, the federal government has now invented an earthquake device. He said, I'm a geologist and I know what I'm talking about. With the Kobe earthquake in Japan, there was no pulse wave, as is normal in earthquakes. And then, uh, there was none in 1989, there was an earthquake in San Francisco. There was no pulse wave with that one either. It is a Tesla device that is being used for evil purposes. The black budget programs have subverted science as we know it, and that's a direct quote. Well, Phil was a, a real patriot, in my opinion, who became deeply concerned about what was really going on in the shadow government. He handed in his extremely high security pass and started to speak the truth publicly to demand immediate full disclosure, seven immediate full disclosure. Seven months later, after giving one of the lectures uh, quoted that I listened to, he was found strangled, with a garden hose around his neck. The official cause of death was suicide. If you believe that, uh, you'll believe anything. Well. I want to wind up in the time I have available, which is about two minutes or three. The reason I wrote my latest book, which is The Money Mafia, World in Crisis, is because after being in Washington two years ago at the Citizens uh, Disclosure Hearings, I was appalled at the naivety of those former congresspeople 
And if they didn't have a clue as to what was going on in their own country, what about people that didn't have the same privileges that they did? So that was the reason I rushed back and started to write The Money Mafia, A World in Crisis, was so that people would know what was going on. I don't make my living from writing books, but that one was so urgent and so much information came in as I was doing it that I just had to get it out, get it finished. The most important aspect of it, and this is the reason I'm plugging it, is because this has an action plan. I have never gotten up in a soapbox and said, the world is going to you know where, and there's nothing you can do about it. First of all, I believe there is something you can do about it. That's the reason I wrote the book. That's the reason for the action plan in the book. But somebody has got to read it and start working on the action plan. And if enough people did, then I think there would be hope. I believe in miracles or I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. So my final note is that there is a postscript to the book that talks about the good things that are going on in the world. Hundreds of them. And if we just had thousands of them, pretty soon we'd have a tsunami of goodwill and change and change in priorities and end the 6,000-year binge in empire building and war and, and, and uh, revolts and all of these things that have been going on and could move towards the kind of world. I hope you will continue to take an interest and do what you can because my heart tells me that the future of the human species actually depends on it. Thank you very much.